Sir, we've had a little problem. These two women are just arriving. They objected to giving up their weapons. Klingons do not surrender their weapons. Who are you? We are Lursa and Baton of the House of Duras. Hello and welcome to the Duras Sisters podcast. We are not Klingons, but we are sisters. And I'm Ashlyn. And I'm Rihanna. This is a wild episode because we are together in Los Angeles, California. In person. In person. We are at uh, Lursa's house. (laughs) I think it is a good tea and a nice house. Aw, thank you. Thanks, Worf. (laughs) Traitorous family. Yeah. Villain. (laughs) Our sworn enemy, Worf. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So yeah, we are blessed to be together today. We've spent like 10 days together, which is really rare these days. And we have been watching a ton of Star Trek Discovery episodes. We took last week off because we were together and we wanted to enjoy our time. But this week we said, now it's back to work. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And back to work it certainly was because we watched so many episodes for this time travel series because this is Star Trek Discovery. This is like very similar to Enterprise in the way that a lot of the plot is just surrounded with time travel. Yeah, I had that thought myself about the similarities between Disco and Enterprise, and I'm excited to delve further into them because we absolutely will in this episode. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But before we do that, Ashlyn, I'm going to ask you if you could travel to any Star Trek Discovery episode, where would you travel and when (laughs) would you travel? Hmm, this is a wonderful question because there are so many different parts of Discovery to travel to. I would definitely have to do at some point in season two because I love Pike. And I would probably... Would I go to Borath? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah. (laughs) To watch Pike see his future of sadness. What? Okay, okay, no, no. No, I'm, no, I'm, no, 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 no. I want you to stand by no, your answer. No, I want, I want more explanation. I, no, I thought of a better one. <laughs> no, okay, I would go to the episode where Spock and Michael and the Telosians are all chilling together on Talos 5. And then I would want to be there Talos. specifically. Oh, Talos 4. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and then I would want to specifically go to that moment in the episode where they like FaceTime Pike through the <laughs> Telogian brainwaves. And he also gets to see Vina. So that, that, that episode is action packed. And that's the one I would love to see. And how would you like to see this episode? Would you want to be Vina? <laughs> Just put yourself mm. in another woman's shoes? No, no. I'd like to be a fly on the wall for this one. Just watch it unfold. Maybe I'd like to be Spock just to enjoy being Spock, but no, I would definitely just be, I would just want to observe this one. (laughs) Nice. That's great. (laughs) So Rihanna, what would you want to see if you could travel forward into the time to Discovery? So initially I was thinking I'd want to go back to the episode with the tree (laughs) because I love that tree so much. You love the tree. You just got a tree tattoo. Yeah. (laughs) Which we've talked about in other episodes about her wanting the tattoo. She got it. (laughs) Yeah, I got it, guys. So you'll be expecting a picture. Since the last recording. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I finally followed through. But it's not the whole episode I love. A Mm. lot of it's like sad. So I think I would travel to Unification Part 3. Oh, geez. Why didn't I think of that one? (laughs) Um, it's incredible. I think, like, because I thought about being in Spock era, too, and that would be incredible because Spock's my favorite. 
But also, I feel like I'd be intruding in the Michael situation with Spock. And so I would want to see Michael furthering Spock's hard work of, like, being an ambassador to these planets and, like, talking with her mom, who's in the Kuat Milat. Like, we just got such cool elements this episode, and we get to see Spock, and we get to remember how awesome he is. So... That is truly the, my episode. <laughs> yeah, you you chose the best one. I'm gonna hold tight to my choice, but <laughs> if I could change it for a third time, it would definitely be to your choice. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Wow. Well, let's dive into these episodes. Woo woo! Yeah. Here is what we watched in the past like 24 hours to, <laughs> to get ready for this podcast. We saw the episodes: Magic to Make the Sanest Go Mad, Brother, New Eden. The Sound of Thunder, Through the Valley of Shadows, Such Sweet Sorrow Part 1, Such Sweet Sorrow Part 2, The Hope Is You Part 1, and Terra Firma Part 1, and then the end of 2. Yeah, and we'll explain when we get to Terra Firma what we mean by what we saw. Yes, (laughs) yes. And just to say again in the series, for those of you who don't listen chronologically to these episodes, or just tune in every once in a while for the series that you like. This time travel series is only about human influenced or he- I keep every time I say this the wrong way. Okay. <laughs> so this is this is about being created time travel. So that means it's not an anomaly. This is only alien or human influenced time travel. Those other episodes will be covered in a different series. So we just want to make note of that right away. And Discovery is probably the hardest series to talk about for time travel because it's so complicated and we had a heck of a time trying to figure out which ones we were supposed to watch because theoretically we could watch every single episode of discovery just like in enterprise we could have watched all of season four yeah but we decided to focus on the episodes that feature the signals specifically in the season two arc (laughs) and of course the major jump you know 950 years in the future (laughs) yeah so the other thing we have to remember is and something that i think we should honestly just talk about now is the fact that when does time travel just become being in the present because we had also wondered how many episodes of season three we should watch for this because technically it is time travel since they are in the future but the future very quickly becomes the present to them and so (laughs) like it has to be because they're not going back so i feel like that sort of differentiates time travel is if they have an intention to go back or the plot lends that they will eventually go back and that obviously is not going to happen for discovery they made sure it wasn't going to happen so that's why we only talked about the beginning of season three even though, yes, they're technically always in the future, but the future is now their present and are present as viewers, so. Yeah, that's the conclusion we came to. And those little bits of terra firma that we watched are all about the Guardian, so stay tuned for uproaringly great ending. Agreed. <laughs> Where we come back to our old friend. <laughs> but to begin, before we even get into any of the signals or any of the, the 900 years in the future... We have an incredible episode from season one, which is the only episode that features time travel in that season. (laughs) (laughs) And this is the sanest man one. What's it called? Magic. Magic to make the sanest go mad. Oh, there's never a man in it. Wait, you know, I honestly don't know. No, yeah, it's just magic to make the sanest go mad. 
Huh. I always thought there was a man in it. Maybe you were thinking because there's a mud in it. Oh, and he's he's not the sanest. <laughs> Especially not in this episode. We finally unearthed the secrets of this title. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so, yeah, let's jump into this. We are once again introduced half of the crew, I should say, is introduced to Harry Mudd, and old fans of Star Trek know that Harry Mudd is a classic criminal from the original series. We've seen him before in Discovery, but he is back for vengeance now and ready to kill the crew of Discovery as many times as it takes for him to figure out how to use their spore drive. Yeah, Mud is all about a good time travel heist. It's his favorite movie. He loves Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> he's seen it a lot. And he's ready to crack the hardest places to steal from. He mentioned to Ash Tyler when they are in prison together that at some point that we never see, Mud is able to crack into a Betazoid bank and rob them blind. And he said he was able to do it by memorizing all the patterns and security codes going on in the bank. And this is how. Mud comes aboard Discovery in a space whale. So, you know, he's one for a dramatic entrance. Yeah. <laughs> and he has a portable transporter and time travel device on his wrist or something. This kind of reminded me of Jack Harkness and Doctor Who with yes. his little vortex manipulator. <laughs> so I thought it was kind of similar technology. He says that he has them in a non-equilibrial matter state, a.k.a. a time crystal. So this is, yeah, (laughs) alert, (laughs) alert, red alert, alert. because this is crazy that a time crystal pops up in this season before we even get wind of it in season two. So, uh, yeah, he has a time crystal. Yeah, actually, I have not really noticed the significance of that whenever we watched this episode before. We just rewatched it for our Love and Affection series, and I think I didn't... It didn't stand out to me as something important because I knew that they would come back later. But thinking about when the writers are first thinking about this episode, they knew that they were going to set up time crystals to come later. So it definitely gave me a deeper appreciation for how far in advance these writers are thinking. Because everyone loves that, loves this detailed planning. It's so good. Absolutely. Yeah, this type of time travel I think we should unpack a little because Mud is able to put all of Discovery and I guess himself in like a different pocket of time is what I'm hearing where it becomes a loop where every 30 minutes, 30 minutes, it resets itself until Mud determines that he wants to get them out of the loop back into quote normal space, whatever that means, I guess, outside of this loop or this pocket of space time. I don't know if it's really a pocket of space time or I think Mud has just set the alarm to go off every 30 minutes. And he's also set Discovery to blow up every 30 minutes if it doesn't work. So this ensures, well, actually, is Mud... Okay, wait, so then this turned into a question. I thought I was explaining something (laughs) to you, and now I'm confused. Because we see so many variations of what happens on Discovery. Sometimes we do see Mud press his little button to destroy the ship. And sometimes I think it just blows up if he's been knocked unconscious, for example. So is it Discovery that has the self-destruct on it? Or is it just his device that is so powerful it can blow up reality? I don't know. (laughs) That's a really good question. I'm looking at my notes as though they'll give me the answer. I think that I always thought it was Mud setting the self-destruct regardless. So I think that 
if he was planning on killing everybody, I think he always, that was his first thing to do, was set the self-destruct. But, like, regardless of what he's going to be doing in this time iteration. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Yeah, and, like, no matter what. I'm just thinking specifically of the moment at the end of the episode where he's contacting the Klingons and he says, hey, come get the ship. It's incapacitated. Let's sell it. And then Michael eats Lorca's like poison evaporate dart or whatever (laughs) and she melts after revealing that she's Michael Burnham and worth much more to the Klingons than Discovery and Mud doesn't just wait for the time to go off he presses his wrist to explode the ship and that was the only time we saw something different I feel like every other time the ship just exploded after the 30 minutes so maybe it's all his device yeah I think you're right Which just means that that device is so powerful and terrifying. I was actually trying to remember where he said he got it from because he said it was fourth dimensional beings who perfected the time crystal, which makes sense, right? Yeah. Yeah, who who perfected the time crystal and how to integrate it into his little like wrist thing. So this makes me think this is definitely more advanced technology than the time suit that Michael and her mom are both going to build in season two (laughs) at different points. And... It must just be these fourth dimensional beings really hooked him up. (laughs) I guess, or he probably stole from them. Yeah, he probably did. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and we don't get to hear much. I mean, we're not, we're going a little ahead of ourselves, but we don't get to hear much about the time crystals even, except that the Klingons guard um, Borath. (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, there's still a lot of questions about time crystals that we don't have a lot of answers to, but apparently Mud has one and he's using it for evil. Yeah. Well, would we expect anything else? <laughs> no. Let's get into to these journeys that Mud has because the big flaw in his plan that he doesn't know about is Stamets has just injected himself with tardigrade DNA a couple episodes ago. So he's acting really weird because he's going through a lot and the tardigrade DNA is affecting him in all these different unpredictable ways, including existing outside of the time stream. And so... I think that Stamets is able to remember this, you know, so you brought up maybe he's in a pocket of time, Mud is, or maybe he can just, maybe Stamets can just remember through every, or remember every timeline that has happened and all the different ways that the future could branch off. Yeah, yeah, I thought this was really interesting because Stamets remarked that because of the DNA, I guess the tardigrade is just very powerful and has this ability to look through different time, like look into time itself. It's probably giving Stamets the ability to look at time from like a thousand different angles or from a different perspective or something like that. Like maybe yeah. he can zoom out. <laughs> I don't well, know. Well, and like he is retaining the ability to remember. So it makes me think that the tardigrades have a memory that is different to how we would remember time like they remember Definitely. all of time in a different not a non-linear standpoint maybe the so. tardigrade hung out with the prophets for a while yeah and came back <laughs> to chill with discovery i mean it is known on earth especially that tardigrades are like nearly indestructible so i think that even time can't stop them so Ooh, fire <laughs> Ooh, i love that yeah for them. <laughs> I love this episode because of the way that Stamets influences Michael throughout it and helps her. It's a win-win scenario because in order to save the ship, Stamets knows he needs Michael and Ash, Tyler, and the and Lorca 
to help him stop this time loop from happening again. And so he has to gain everybody's trust. And a lot of that is breaking down Michael's barriers a little bit and getting her to admit her feelings about Ash so then she can tell him everything that's going on with the time loop. And if it wasn't for Michael's ability to be more vulnerable, <laughs> then it might not have worked, honestly. Mud might have succeeded and sold Discovery to the Klingons. Yeah, I know. The Stamets' ability to read people in this episode is really impressive, and also his ability to keep a cool head, because we have seen a lot of different Star Trek characters handle time travel differently, spanning from T'Pol, who doesn't want to believe it at all, to someone like Cisco or Dax, who's just, like, super on board with it. And I feel like Stamets handled this particular stressful situation very well. I mean, every 30 minutes he's having to see his friends and shipmates die plus having to explain it to them all over again and try to make any progress and also evading mud in the process so it's a definitely makes sense for paul to be acting this way because he's got a very cool scientific head when he needs to be so uh, i'm just grateful that he was able to like you said to break down michael's barriers and to get through to ash eventually because ash had more info about mud that was able to then help them even more to understand his motives and everything so a great teamwork episode despite the fact that most people didn't remember any of the time iterations. It's really impressive. Yeah, there's a sad quote at the end where Ash says, I can't believe we missed our first kiss or something yeah. like that. He's like, I'm sad I don't remember our first kiss. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they, the whole crew loses these moments and they'll never get them back. But, <laughs> but Stamets remembers. Yeah, Stamets has enough memory for the, the, the whole lot of them. What I was most impressed with is the crew's ability to come together as a team and work so dynamically to start believing each other and to really perfect these runs. So every time time reset, Stamets and Michael and Ash all got better, better, and better <laughs> at stopping mud faster. <laughs> yeah. And they learned so many things throughout all these different runs. It was just really impressive to me that by the last one, it was like, man, this is not a dress rehearsal. This is the day of the show. They have rewired the captain's chair. They have totally changed the comm system. They have totally taken over the ship without mud even knowing. It was very impressive to me that they did all of that within the 10 minutes before Mud came on board. That is extreme efficiency. <laughs> yeah, so impressive. Wow. <laughs> um, I love this episode, and I think it's a nice setup for season two, you know, as we mentioned with the time crystals. So, Rihanna, will you bring us in? Tell us all about season two and the arc and everything that goes on with Spock and everything. <laughs> yeah, so we got to start where all good things start, which is Spock. <laughs> um, so in the episode we watched after called Brother, which is an amazing episode, we learn that there are these seven bursts or signals in the sky and that the red angel is something that Spock had encountered as a child. And this is the reason why Spock is on leave, why he's in a psychiatric institute, all of these things, why they think that Spock killed some people, <laughs> is all because of the Red Angel. Because of Spock's ability to see and comprehend time differently from everyone else. And because of Spock's hybrid nature, he's able to both understand the logic of time travel and also the illogic of it and 
somehow comes to terms with it also because of his dyslexia which i think is amazing cute <laughs> yeah he was able to sort of see things backwards and see things in a non-linear perspective this i mean of course we learn later spans entirely from his connection to michael because gabrielle burnham is the one who built the initial time suit all of that but as far as we know in brother we only know that the red angel comes to save michael because they have gone to the asteroid to save Jet Reno, and Michael is the first to see the Red Angel up close. And she, of course, thinks she's hallucinating and all of that. Sorry, so I'm just, just one more thing I want to say about Spock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that he said to Pike that before he left the ship that he's run into questions he couldn't answer. And so he is out there seeking those answers and it really of course Spock like really ties this all together because he's an important factor to remember in this time travel arc because each character that we learn about or each planet that we visit are integral to this red angel arc and like every single moment the exact time when the red angel signal is sent and the reason that they're there is integral for everything like in this first episode with Jet Reno Yes. Yes. Thank you. That was beautiful. Thanks. Um, something that is kind of blowing my mind right now that I'm just thinking of listening to the beautiful way that you phrased Spock and his brain is I'm remembering two mere episodes ago when we started the time travel series talking about Spock and how he seems like he's the only person in Starfleet, the only science officer for sure, who is able to calculate and do these extreme time travel calculations in his head. He gets them back safely from the past several times in the series and of course in Voyage Home where he has to guess. Yeah. As, uh, McCoy so roughly points out to him. Um, <laughs> he's just my favorite boy. Um, <laughs> So this is kind of blowing my mind that this is why is because of his dealings with the Red Angel earlier and how his perspective is forever altered because of that. So thank God Spock joined Starfleet. A lot of people would have died and horrifically changed the past without him being able to get them back. Yeah, Ashlyn, thank you for bringing that up. I hadn't put that together either, but it makes so much sense. And quickly, I want to say too that it's really amazing that Gabrielle saw that in Spock and she knew that he would be a key to getting the suit into Michael's hands because she kept getting yanked back to the future. So yeah, it's just incredible. Wow. Shout out to Spock oh, and to Gabrielle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the greatest scientists to ever live. So seriously, I kept thinking that actually throughout this entire season two arc that the brains on this Discovery crew are the best brains in yeah. the galaxy, surely in Starfleet, to be able to figure out all of this. So back to brother. In this first episode is when we see the signals for the first time. And I thought it was interesting to note that all seven appeared at the same time. And then all of them faded except one. And that was the one where they're on the asteroid to go get Reno. So, of course, yeah. that's what they investigate it. They pick her up. It's all good, as Reno talked about. Um, so I thought it was interesting that there was a little bit of a preview <laughs> to show, hey, there's going to be seven of these. So you got to keep following them until they run out. Yeah, Ashlyn, I have a question. When you first watched Discovery, do you remember what you were thinking when these signals first appeared and what your conjecture was of what they could have been? I was totally mystified. I had no idea. I figured it was something long-winded. <laughs> was some kind of explanation that was going to play out for a while, but I had no guesses. What about you, Rihanna? 
Yeah, same. <laughs> My best guess was that it was some machine sending them all about the galaxy to try to solve this puzzle, but I was like, I have no idea. It's clearly something with extremely advanced technology because of the distance between the signals and that some are appearing in the beta quadrant, which has never been explored in especially TOS history. Of course not. Like Pike and the Enterprise has been on deep space missions, but no humans have been at the beta quadrant at this point. So right. I was also impressed that they could even track those. But anyway. yeah, so at the end of this episode, when I was watching it for this round, for these episodes, I had forgotten that it wasn't mom coming to save Michael, that it was literally just Michael taking a look at herself, yeah, giving her that hint. So I thought that was interesting. So then in New Eden is when we see the second signal, and that is a wild journey, <laughs> New yes. Eden, because they find the signal and they also hear this distress call that has been playing on loop for 200 years. 200. Three, I had 200 down. I had 300. Oh, geez. Well, for for several hundreds of years, (laughs) this distress signal has been playing over and over and over. And it is revealed that everyone inside the church was taken from the year 2053 during World War III. They were sheltering from the bombs of World War III. And they were all taken to the Beta Quadrant. So here we are. This is Terralysium. Yeah, and... You said there's no humans in the beta quadrant, but there are. <laughs> At this point, we just didn't know about them. Yep. It's oh, insane. Man, you slapped two minutes ago Ashlyn right in the <laughs> face. <laughs> I'm just saying it's so wild because none of us could have predicted this. And this is the thing that throws the Discovery crew off so much as well, is that they're like, there's no way there can be humans this far out except for the fact that it's the Red Angel, which I think is really interesting. And I know we need to talk about the mechanics of the Red Angel more when we get to the Borath episode and everything and further on. But I do just want to pose this question in our minds now of if the Red Angel can travel through time, then is time and space the same? Like, can you travel through space using... I mean, clearly you can, but I'm just wondering how... You can go through different spaces into different quadrants while also traveling in time. Hmm. (laughs) I don't know. I think it's probably easy. Like, if you can time travel, then instant transmission anywhere in the universe is probably easy. Yeah. Is my guess. Yeah, it seems like a slice of meringue after that. And even so, even if you can't do it at the same time, like, say you're Michael's mom, chilling a thousand years in the future and you want to go to Terralysium, so then you are, you're already chilling on Terralysium, then just travel into the past to get them. But if you wanted to go to Earth, maybe she would have to travel to Earth first and then go back in time and grab them. So kind of have to do two steps in one. I don't know. I think it's all built in together. Yeah, because I'm just wondering, only because it's the beta quadrant, and that's what really threw me off, was that not only is this angel traveling so far into the future and transporting this entire church. The science is just incredible and pretty much like magic to me. (laughs) Well, I guess I'm also wondering, because this is Michael's mom who saved them, right? This is not Michael. So why? This was the only thought I had while I was rewatching the series is that when Gabrielle went into the future and she saw that there's no life, my guess is that her test was to save a small group of people from Earth, put them on Terralysium, and see if it was just the Beta Quadrant that was void of life. But when it didn't work, she realized that it was something like much bigger that killed the whole universe and not just the Quadrant. I think you're 100% correct, Ashlyn. 
Yeah. Okay, well, cool. Yeah. That's a great answer. Yeah. Because that's the only thing that would make sense to me. It's not like this is a habit for her. She does save Michael, but this is not a pattern. Yeah. Okay. That's great to know. This is an interesting episode because there is a guy on Terlesium who's a descendant of Old Earth and Jacob is his name. Jacob, yeah. And he is like the only science user <laughs> in this culture of religious people. And they have combined all the religions into one. So I thought it was great at the end of the episode that Pike does decide to tell Jacob the truth and say, Earth is saved. They have spread out throughout the galaxy. We have evolved as humans and you're not alone in the universe. (laughs) Yeah, they had an interesting talk about General Order 1. Also, General Order 1, I think, can also dynamically be applied to the Temporal Prime Directive. You know, it's very similar in the fact that it's revealing this life-altering news to someone who is not technologically prepared for it, so. Yeah. Yeah, it's important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just interesting to hear them talk about it and hear them have to cross these quandaries in these episodes because everything they're doing is involving time travel, but they don't really realize how or why. So crazy. <laughs> yeah, it really makes me value the importance of just leaving things alone. And we're going to talk a lot about that at the end of these couple episodes because time is a fickle bitch. <laughs> well,. Hey, Ashlyn, I think we can talk about it right now. Okay, let's talk about it. This is the sound of thunder, or the sound of meow meow. (laughs) We had a cat named Thunder. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for filling them in. Yeah, I forgot that we have listeners also listening to us right now. Yeah, being in person, we have people listening to us. We're not just happily having a conversation together. Yeah, literally the reason we started this podcast is because we would hold literal discussions like this for fun. And we were like, we should just record what we're doing and have (laughs) more fun. (laughs) It would have been great to go back and time travel ourselves 10 years ago to listen to what type of conversations we were having and also to tell ourselves, don't worry, there's going to be like 50 new Star Trek shows. You're going to (laughs) survive. I think real quick, what we would have been saying to each other is I'd be like, ooh, I love Data so much. (laughs) And Ashlyn would be like, ooh, I love Picard so much. (laughs) Do you think he's ever going to get over his Borg trauma? (laughs) That's about it. (laughs) I think you're right. (laughs) Well, Rihanna, does Saru ever get over his family drama? (laughs) Well, you know, he is getting over it in this episode and learning a lot of things about Kaminar because this is where the second signal is. And Spock guided the angel to save Michael, We learn in this episode that this is why Spock knows so much about the angel is because when Michael was running away as a child on Vulcan, I know that you asked about Saru and I'm talking about Spock, but it's fine. No, I'm glad you transitioned because when in doubt, Rihanna's hard factory reset is back to Spock. (laughs) So go for it. (laughs) Let it loose. Yeah, because he's the grounding element in everything of my life. (laughs) But so he sent the angel to go save Michael. The fact that Michael is continuously being saved by the angel is hinting the angel's identity. And I think that the writers build this up so well because the whole time I'm thinking Spock is the angel or I'm thinking Spock created the suit later on and sent it back to save Michael or something. Or I'm thinking it has something to do with someone in Michael's immediate group of people, not her thought to be dead mother, you know? So I think that they led us in a really interesting way of asking that question of who the angel is. And we're given a sneak peek of the angel again in this episode with Saru's amazing little heightened vision. 
Yes, he is the first one to get an actual look at the angel and realizes that it's a humanoid. And that it's like a suit and not an angelic being that would maybe come from Earth's biblical texts. Yeah, exactly. So, sorry, New Eden, you're out. <laughs> <laughs> and Kaminar is in. And Kaminar's in. Okay, so let's just break down what went down with baby Spock now that you've brought it up. I want to just focus on that real quick. So let's go further to Gabrielle. So she knows at this point she's chilling on Terelysium, desperate to change the future, desperate to save Michael. She sees that Michael is killed because she ran away. She pulled a a Spock. Literally. (laughs) Um, She pulled a baby Spock and ran away. Everyone's trying to run away from Sarek. He Uh, should take the hint. Yeah, well, it's also really tough because she's trying to run through the deserts of Vulcan, which is just, like, not good because once you're out of the city, it's just all desert. Yeah, and there was no Aichaya to die for her. (laughs) (laughs) And no adult Spock to save her, but... There was her mother. But her mother was there. Also, weirdly, Vulcan is just the place to be to save a past child (laughs) running away from the Sarek family. (laughs) So many visitors from the future to save these children. Anyway, so she sees that Michael dies in the desert running away. This is Gabrielle sees this. And so then round two, she goes back in time. She asks Spock. So she probably herself couldn't find Michael by looking in the desert. I imagine maybe she jumped back previous times to try to find her. She couldn't. She asks Spock. Spock is the one who directs her to save Michael. Yeah. So this is wild because this would have to happen really quickly because we know that the suit yanks Gabrielle back into the 950 years in the future fairly quickly because that's where it's anchored is on Terralisium. So I think that this probably would have happened in a minute or less. I don't know how long it takes even when they have a massive containment field around Gabrielle and the suit. It's still about to rip a hole in the universe. And so I would imagine that wherever she is, she has to act very quickly. And so this makes me think that she would have gone back a lot of times to see Spock and that's why he's getting his nightmares. Yeah, my impression of it was that this wasn't just one time that she came back. I think she probably came back like maybe 10 times to try to get this right. I think that because in the next episode, she describes that it continues to take her multiple jumps to even stop control from getting the sphere data. And no matter what she tries, they always get it. They always win. Everyone always dies. The future is the same. So, and this is also why she's so emotionally indifferent to Michael and can't let herself get attached because she's seen Michael die hundreds of hundreds of times. So this is basically Steins Gate, (laughs) this great anime about time travel you all should watch. (laughs) Um, I finally converted Rihanna, so she has seen it as well. Yeah. Anyway. So good. Yeah. So, oof. Yeah, this is a lot. And so then when we get to Kaminar, I mean, this is such a trial for Saru, everything going on with him for this episode. Yeah, I mean, we can't really get deeply into Saru's interactions. We talked about it a lot in our family series. And we'll talk about, again, in our ethics series, because you mm. know that that's going to happen eventually. We need some ethics here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm going to read a lot of Kant beforehand to beef up. <laughs> I'm, like, not even joking. I, no, I was like, Chidi, are you here? <laughs> this is another instance where the red angel is directly interfering with what's happening instead of just placing a signal because the angel arrives to destroy the bowels pylons that are attempting to wipe out every single 
dystopian colony on the planet. And Discovery can't do anything fast enough to destroy all these pylons. And so the angel comes and renders them null, essentially, which is, again, incredible technology. (laughs) Uh, But... Like, just mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it's back to your point of how can the Red Angel fly a church? How can the Red Angel destroy these pylons? And I don't think Gabrielle, when she was making the suit, was thinking about, like, well, I'm going to have to have a massive tractor beam in this suit. But I guess she was. <laughs> I guess. Well, I have another question. So this time, this was Michael setting the signal yeah. at Kaminar and also subsequently destroying... It was Michael both times, yeah. So did she arrive twice and only set the signal once or did she chill and hang out (laughs) waiting for the end of the episode to destroy the pylons i know i'm nitpicking but these are questions that i have i think she just chilled because during the finale we see michael go back and do all these jumps i don't think she comes back twice between each visit i think she sets the signal and time might be going faster for her is my guess because she is going to be pulled back into the future so maybe well, no, that doesn't really hold up. I don't know. Yeah. I, I just don't think she does two jumps. I don't think so either. But also, she can send the signal back in time. So maybe she sent the signal first and then went on ahead and jumped to when Saru could Boom. see her. Ashlyn, yet again, pulling out these incredible <laughs> and probably correct theories. <laughs> I, I, thank you. Yeah. I also just want to note that Michael, so obviously duh, she's setting all the signals, but these times where she interferes and not her mom, they're always different. So when she went to the asteroid, she didn't do anything in the asteroid. She didn't save Michael. She didn't do anything. Pike saved Michael in that situation. All she did was reveal herself to Michael, and she trusted her own brain to figure out what was going on. Yeah. And then, and then of course, she saved Saru here on Kaminar. <laughs> yeah, she's interfering a lot, but also she's just interfering enough to change the future a little bit at a time. Yeah, and... I know that we talk about a lot of time travel stuff during this, which is great because it's what the series is for, but I'm thinking again about Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban where Hermione's like, how did you perform this amazing Patronus charm? And Harry said, it's because I'd already done it and so I knew that I could. And this is sort of the mentality I think Michael is taking into these jumps when she's going back the quote-unquote second time, but also her first time, is because she's already, she knows that they already, the signals were set and the things occurred because they're happening in the present. So that would be such an interesting amount of confidence to have in yourself to be like, well, I'm I'm hoping and I'm almost certain that I could do it this time because I've already seen it happen, seen myself do it before. Well, and then this is the question that I was thinking about throughout a lot of these episodes. How did this go down the first time? And I think this answer is like what you told me when we watched Time's Arrow, there's no first time. Yeah. Because time has been meddled with so much and I think we're in a pogo paradox again. Po yeah. Yeah, I don't maybe. Pogo paradox for those of you um who missed our DS9 episode. Voyager it, episode. Oh god, who missed our Voyage episode. The Pogo paradox is where you go back in time to stop an event from occurring but end up being the thing that causes the event. Yeah, so it's a little different because they're trying to ensure that the event occurs. I think what's altering this special version of time travel is that gabrielle is coming from the future and not from the near future from the extreme future so this is probably how it was so easy for temporal investigations to 
work is because they were set out far enough that they could make these changes on um a like minute scale rather than I, yeah I, I don't know that's I don't a know great answer yeah I'm not sure either yeah <laughs> well I guess I'm just thinking about Daniels again I can't help but think about Daniels yeah because Gabrielle and Daniels are kind of the same people I mean they're they have the same intentions mm-hmm. Daniels is coming back as much as possible in, in Enterprise to change the future and to win the temporal war and Gabrielle is coming back to change her own future and to stop everyone from dying. Yeah. So they're both actors who are absolutely interfering. So I guess that's why there's no first time, like, oh, how did Michael think of all this the first time? It's because it was always going to lead to this, yeah. no matter what. So there's my maybe rough, rougher answer. <laughs> I mean, but I think you're right. Again! <laughs> <laughs> please tweet us <laughs> we need help time travel experts yeah uh i also like that michael picks up in this episode sound of thunder that the signals are not random she says there is no way that Kaminar would have been chosen out of every single planet in every galaxy yeah i mean it's clear that every one of these signals is absolutely directed at members of the discovery crew absolutely and uh, this is when we finally get to see Gabrielle appears in the episode Perpetual Infinity and when things start to become more clear. And we figure out that Michael is the key factor of the Red Angel, that she seems to be centered in everything, and so they risk her life in order to make the Red Angel appear which is pretty smart and also very reckless, obviously, which, like, that's Michael in a nutshell. Well, and she thinks this is herself because it has all the DNA markers of being Michael, so she's risking her life to maybe meet herself and figure out what the heck is going on for all of this. Which, for me, if I... Well, I don't know. Because, yeah, I I was thinking I, I would trust myself, but there's no proof to know <laughs> yeah. that the who the Red Angel is is actually trustworthy unless you meet them. So it yeah. makes sense. But Yeah, they're taking a huge risk here. Huge risk. But, I mean, the payoff is phenomenal because we finally get the information that we've been needing. First of all, that it's Michael's mother, but also how this suit was built. And we learned that the reason that Michael's family was even on um, that planet when the Klingons attacked was the fact that they were using the power of supernova that was of a star that was going supernova to charge the time crystal to power it. The trials weren't even complete by Gabrielle's first jump. So I just want to talk a bit about her exceptional bravery and also insanity. Like, I mean, obviously your family is about to be killed by Klingons. You have to think of something quick and if you have a time travel suit you might as well and this is what starts this whole domino effect for Gabrielle is the fact that the time suit was meant to just I guess jump around wherever is this is what they were trying to create a time suit that could just literally go wherever go anywhere and so she intended to just go 20 minutes back in time so that they could pack up and leave before the Klingons came but instead she got thrown into the future, into the this literal beingless future where everything's been destroyed. And I think I have a question then. So is that anchor, was that something that they just wouldn't have figured out unless they would have done a trial? 
Yeah. And the trial would have gotten someone stuck in the future, probably. Yeah. But when she jumped in the future, it seemed like there was no destination or time clocked. Yeah. So I think she just randomly threw herself. Or maybe the technology was not super precise at that point because she had just made the suit. That's what I think because it shows in her logs that Michael is viewing that she's very disoriented and just sort of floating in space and wondering, time suit, tell me where and when I am. It's phenomenal, though, that this happened because no one would have known about this and it would have occurred regardless. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that she found out about it and attempted thousands of times, probably, to stop it and eventually succeeded because of the help of the entire crew of Discovery and the Enterprise, that control would have taken otherwise control would have taken over. And so I feel horrible that Gabrielle had to go through this, but if she didn't, then we wouldn't even have stood a chance, sorry, we, <laughs> they wouldn't have even stood a chance of trying to stop control. Yeah, she's awesome. Um, I really enjoy and was saddened by the beginning of this episode because we see the exact scene where the Klingons are coming into the house to kill her parents and Michael's hiding in the closet. And we learn that the Klingons are there specifically to take the time crystal. We don't know if it's like, the specific people who originally owned it are coming back to get it, or if it's just, like, the monks from Borath are coming. We don't know. But the Klingons are angry that the time crystal is not theirs. So that's why they're there to kill the Burnham family. So that's sad. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah, she's 950 years in the future. Um, She's pulled back. This actually reminded me in a roundabout way of the uh, Deep Space Nine episode, The Visitor, because it's a parent who is being pulled like a rubber band through time and can only have brief glimpses with their person. And so Gabrielle, instead of choosing to reveal herself to Michael, she just uses all her time to save humanity. So yeah. 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 I mean, it's horrible to hear her talk about how she saw Michael at graduation and she would just go back to these small moments. But also, we learn that she has attempted to put the sphere data in Discovery's path. So that's why Discovery got it. And um, like Ashlyn said earlier, she still was never able to keep it out of Control's hands. But by putting it in Discovery's path, she's giving the data a fighting chance. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And this is also the episode, we of course have already said it, but we find out in this one that the mom, that Gabrielle is not sending the signals. So she was able to... Was it changed the flight trajectory of the sphere data to get to Discovery? Yes. Because there wasn't a there wasn't a signal to go to the sphere data. No. No. Yeah. Because she wasn't sending them, but right. she just put it in their path because she's a time traveler. So so cool. We've seen this theme come up in time travel often with a character who is so far into the future, and I really found similarity where Gabrielle says to. Pike she says you're a ghost to me Captain Pike and we've heard that similar phraseology from other time travelers Mm -hmm. like the fake Rasmussen guy who was like pretending to be a time agent or whatever in TNG in TNG yes he said like you all are dead to me kind of thing (laughs) and we've seen other characters so I just thought that is such a true statement and I think something that would be very profoundly difficult to wrap your head around at first but she's been pulled back to the future so many times that they all are just ghosts to her and so she's having to reconcile that so this is why she says to michael people think time is precious beautiful time is savage it always wins 
And so for Gabrielle, time is a prison and it's something that she cannot escape. She can't escape this future that is just decimated. She also feels like she can't ever get back to her regular time, can't ever fix the future, all of these things. And so she is also carrying it all on her own shoulders, which is very much like her daughter. And doesn't believe that Discovery is able to do it and able to help even when she puts the sphere data in their path and then she finds out that they can't destroy it. She's like, I knew it. I knew I shouldn't have entrusted you with this. And it's hard to watch, but I completely understand. We've been talking about this the whole pod. Here we go. This is about the time crystals. This is a brand new thing for any Star Trek series. In the past, throughout this entire series of the Dura Sisters podcast, we have talked about chronotons and temporal chemocyte. fields, chemocyte. Um, temporal parasites. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many different ways to alter time, but we have not talked about a time crystal before. So this is a physical, actual crystal that naturally is just growing on this planet called Borath in the Klingon Empire. And my explanation of why we've never heard of this ever and Starfleet doesn't even know about it is because of the nature of this entire arc of season two. Because as you should know if you're listening to this, hopefully you've seen all of Discovery because we're going to spoil the whole shebang here. <laughs> but Discovery ends up in the future, in the 32nd century, and nobody from current quote-unquote time from the current time can talk about it so spock pike everyone on the enterprise no one in their families can know exactly what happens to discovery if we walk it back a little bit that means laurel cannot talk about it and ash tyler can't talk about it and so the only people that have really interacted with the planet borath are pike laurel and the crew of the discovery so it makes sense why this information and knowledge of this planet has not been leaked further into the federation and when people like Worf joins you know first Klingon officer he's not going to be spilling secrets about the time crystals to the federation and I think in general it's probably something that's not even widely known among Klingons I think Laurel only was privy to this knowledge because she was the chancellor of Kronos yeah and so I imagine this is something that yeah. that the high council would know about or maybe only the chancellor so maybe Gowron was <laughs> thinking about the time crystals but never used them either I don't know so yeah, this is something that we hear a little bit more about at the beginning of this episode is that Borath is a well-kept secret within even the Klingon Empire and that the monks who live there and work there are also bound to the secret and bound to protecting them because Tanavik, who is Ash and Laurel's son, <laughs> which is crazy. <laughs> exactly, Ash, I agree with that. Um, said that time flows differently for those who protect the crystals so they can understand time better, which is kind of like Spock. I mean, they have this ability to see time as a nonlinear element. And it also apparently allows a child to grow into a full-grown adult. Does it mean he can grow back into a baby? Like, we don't know how time works over there, but it's wacky, essentially. Well, Tanavik says that the past, present, and future are all the same thing to the monks. So try to wrap your head around that one. I know I certainly can't, but I guess Tanavik can. Tanavik can. I understand why Pike, when he is done with this episode at the very end, he says to Ash and Laurel, because they're like, what the heck? How is our son grown up? He said, this experience was only for me and I don't think I can describe it. <laughs> Which yeah, I, fair. <laughs> I'm, I right now cannot describe it in this podcast. <laughs> yeah, and we saw it. <laughs> yeah. 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 
<laughs> yeah, another very insightful thing that Tanavik says about time travel and about time itself, he says, the present is a veil between anticipation and horror. And I think Ooh. this is very true for Pike because this is where Pike discovers his fate, which is that he will be crippled mm-hmm. and put in a chair that only can help him blink yes or no. And this is a fate that we have all known. We've all had that time crystal <laughs> information since the literal beginning of Star Trek. But this is finally when Pike realizes it. And what Pike does is incredible is because if he takes the crystal, Tanavik says that his fate will be sealed. Yeah. You want to talk more about that, Ashlyn? Like, yeah. Ah, this is incredible. This makes me think that the writers specifically chose to bring Pike back for this season for this episode and for this exact plot because it's so much fun to play with characters that we already know about, flesh out this back history for them. But of course, we're all waiting for the other shoe to drop the entire season. We know that this horrific accident happens to Pike when he sacrifices his life to save these children. And so when Pike joins the audience and also waiting for the other shoe to drop, it's just, it's really intriguing to watch. And I also don't really want to know the future about Michael or Saru or anyone on Discovery because I just don't want to know about how the show ends up and I don't want to be waiting the whole time for their death. And so I think it was really smart that they chose Pike to play this role for Discovery and that he can make this sacrifice, this very noble sacrifice to seal his own fate. I mean, we know his fate is just, could you continue to make noble sacrifices because that's the exact type of person he is. And so I think that's why it seals his fate. Also, perhaps there's some like magic future juice sprinkled into the crystal that seals the fate. But I think it's that if you have the willpower to take the crystal and know what's in store for you, then you will make the same decisions, the same type of decisions for the rest of your life. Ashlyn, I really like that answer because I was just about to ask. I don't think that there is a little sprinkle of fate sealing. I think your other... a whisper of fate. (laughs) I think your other explanation was perfect because we see Michael touch the crystal and Michael sees everyone get killed by Leland, but the common denominator of every time Michael and Reno touch the crystal is that they saw the undetonated photon torpedo being launched into Enterprise's hull. So I was like, but that wasn't Michael's fate to die at the hands of Leland. And so I think you're absolutely right, Ashlyn, that this is Pike ensuring that fate for himself because it's what he has to do. He is the epitome of Starfleet. So it makes sense. Pike's amazing. I had the thought while watching this scene, specifically when he decides to take the crystal, how many Star Trek characters would make this decision? And then I thought about it and my answer was all of them. Most of (laughs) them. Because they're all very noble and amazing. So I guess I should say how many people that you know would make this decision because we are not evolved humans yet. Yeah. (laughs) And this is a huge, (laughs) just a a giant thing to do. So Sacrifice. yeah, Yeah, giant sacrifice. Um, it's a hundred feet tall. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> yeah. Rihanna, it's interesting. You brought up about Michael seeing her future and everyone else who touches the time crystal. I was definitely thinking in the next episode, Such Sweet Sorrow, that Michael was using the time crystal to guide her future and actually there's a great rick and morty episode about this so i thought that was a funny connection but anyway yeah um yeah so i thought it was 
interesting to see her using it as a tool more than a destiny altering (laughs) future device. Yeah, because then she ensures that it doesn't happen where Leland kills everyone on the bridge. So that's really great. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so we find out in the beginning of this episode that there has still only been five five signals. So we're waiting on the last two. And half the people in the briefing room were like, are we just going to sit and wait around for the next one? And Michael says, trust the mystery. Because she knows that this has some type of intervention that they can't quite piece out yet. But she knows that... If it's something to do with her mom, it's trustworthy, and it's something to do with her, then it's probably trustworthy. And so I like that determination she has on herself for that. This episode, we see them building a time suit from scratch with the crystal through the help of going to Zahia and having Poe come in and help them. And all of these different signals were the things that guided them in order to make this time suit, which is just incredible. I love the close personal connections that are happening throughout all of these signals. Tilly is seeing her best friend again that she like never thought she would see. Saru gets reunited with his sister, another long lost family member he never thought he would see. So yeah, this is a wonderful reunion and it just drives home the fact that this is not just some smart person changing the future. This is about a hundred of incredibly smart individuals changing the future. This is not Janeway going back in time to rescue her crew and changing the future. This is the work of about, you know, 12 key players all working in tandem to do their best to save humanity. So I thought that this was a kind of a... Not even humanity, but everything. Yeah, to save everything. So I thought this was a cool difference between what we've seen in the past Star Trek, which is maybe Q snapping his fingers and which also, where's Q? He could have helped, but whatever. Yeah, you know he didn't want to. He was bored. <laughs> yeah, he's like, oh, let's see how the humans do it. Because he's, he's like, I see, I see event ending catastrophes every day. This yeah. is just another. <laughs> but yeah, this is not Superman coming to rescue everybody. It's Michael coming to rescue everybody. <laughs> yeah. But she couldn't have done it without everyone on Discovery putting the suit together and figuring out how to energize the time crystal and charge it. And this Without a supernova yeah. around. What? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, this is the key point of this episode is that none of this could have been done alone. And also, it's incredible to see them all building the suit and all working together, using their best strategies, even though most of them, I'd say probably all of them have never built a time travel suit before and they haven't built one of this caliber or technology but because Gabrielle had the specs in her logs and had everything that they needed they just needed the smartest brains in Starfleet to do it you know just casually Casually. (laughs) this is the of course turning point for this entire season and this is where we are finally understanding why all the signals were sent. We need to talk a little bit about the crew's decision to go with Michael into the future because initially Michael was planning to just take the sphere data into the future with the time suit and take it where it was out of the hands of control. But I think that honestly, everyone on that crew recognized that yes, Michael's amazing and very capable, 
but she needs us and the universe needs us. They need all of our smart brains together to make this work till the very end. And it definitely couldn't have been done if it was just Michael going into the future. All the events that happened in season three couldn't have been figured out without the help of the Discovery crew. And so we see a lot of Star Trek episodes in the past where they contemplate the idea of what would happen if they had to remain in whatever time period they were in currently. We see this with Kirk telling Scotty and Uhura and Red Shirts number one and two City on the Edge of Forever. That they would have to just blend in and get accustomed to it. Or Bolana contemplating what it would be like to have to try to be a Klingon in the past. But now we're seeing this crew actively making a choice to leave their time period. Not just 100 years in the past. We're talking nearly a thousand years into the future. And so what a brave sacrifice and what a decision to have to make on the fly. But I think for a lot of them, it wasn't a hard choice or not as hard as it should have been because they know that it's necessary. Yeah, and I think a lot of this crew is already really separated from their family and their friends who are not on Discovery, or they have no one. So it seems like, on the surface, an easy decision for a lot of these characters, but I am also wondering how much of it was just pressure on the fly to also sacrifice yourself and to also do the right thing because I think this is a huge decision that should not have to be made in about three minutes which is how long it takes for all of them to choose this once they find out that Michael's going back into the future. For their mental health I'm like oh geez (laughs) this is a lot this is a big choice to make in a short amount of time and I think I would definitely regret it at some points. Well, I mean, we see them having to unpack this decision throughout all of season three, and a lot of them deal with it in different ways, but... I was wondering, and Ashley and I talked about this when we were watching the episode, like, what about the Lower Decks crew, who probably were like, well, I love this ship, and I will love these people, I guess I'll come with, but, like, did a lot of them get to, like, wait, wait, no, I'd rather stay here with my families, I'm gonna beam aboard Enterprise, you know? They I'm were kind sure of, they did, yeah. yeah. They kind of did, like, a, okay, last call, anyone not going to the future, get off now. <laughs> yeah, this train stops at the future town. Yeah, time to get off, yeah, so I definitely don't think I would make that decision. Yeah. I would want to stay in my present. Yeah, absolutely, I would not go to the future with Michael. <laughs> no way. <laughs> so, Something else that I thought was really cool to see, and we're now definitely well into such Sweet Sour Part 2, is I love to see that the Klingons and the Bowel fighters along with the Kelpians join them for this final battle. And this is, again, all because of the signals that Michael has sent and because of the friends that Discovery made along the way because of those signals. And I love the line that Laurel says when she says, Klingons will always fight to preserve the future. Yes. And I love that. I think it's so lovely to see everyone on a united front, especially, I don't think that the Ba'ul are actually in those fighters. It seems like the Kelpian have taken over (laughs) the Kelpian, have taken over those fighters, but it would be cool to see the Ba'ul joining in the fight. Right. (laughs) And also, do you realize that Spock was the one to figure out what was going on? I mean, obviously it's because Spock can see this clearer than anyone besides the time monks, (laughs) but... I love the moment in this episode where Spock realizes why the signals haven't been sent yet. And he says, because you set them, Michael. You got everyone here together. You made sure Reno was there. You made sure that Poe was there. All of these key factors. And that's when he realizes, oh, this is the time to go set the signals. I mean, him and Michael together make this realization. And it's beautiful because it does 
play out finally in a way that we as audience can all understand. And I read this quote on this amazing website who has been helping make our entire time travel watch list because they have an extensive amount of research and articles about time travel episodes in Star Trek. It's called exastrascientitia.org. It's amazing. Definitely go check it out. And one of the things that the writer said was that the Red Angel arc is possibly the most complex plot line ever in Star Trek. And I think I really have to agree with this because it spans this entire season and it's unraveling these questions every episode, but just giving you a little taste of it. And it's just so cleverly put together that, like I said in the beginning, I don't think I would have ever figured out that it was Gabrielle and Michael, but not together at separate times. And that Michael set these signals and it's just so incredibly done. Yeah, I mean, I think, of course, the runner-up for second most complicated time travel situation is Enterprise, is the season where they're really going through the temper of war, because that's incredibly complex as well. It's just beautiful to see a time travel season, a whole season like we have on Discovery is super cool. Absolutely. Okay, I have some questions. This is where I have a couple of problems when Michael does her jumps. And I just want to think about how all the different parallel universes are going at this point. Because we've never really talked about, I'm saying not you, Rihanna and I, we have, but the show Discovery has never really talked about how the pasts and futures all reconcile with each other and which path we're on and what's going on. It seems like whenever Gabrielle is jumping from the future into the past to alter something in Discovery's timeline, that she's creating a new branch, like a new future where Michael doesn't die in the desert with Spock. She's creating a new one where Michael lives and kind of creating her own specialized future where everything goes the way that she wants to. So in the other past that she's creating, these parallel universes, they just end or just don't exist or it just seems like she's making new threads. Yeah. And so then (laughs) I'm wondering when Michael jumps back, she realizes, okay, it's me. This is it. I have to set the signals right now during this crazy war against control. Why, when she jumps to set the signals, does she not see past Michael also setting the signals? Because she was always setting the signals and she's the only Michael doing it. Mm-hmm. It's not like there's two Michaels. It's just at the time it was set, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this is the only way my brain can reconcile it is that it was always her. But also, Star Trek doesn't always adhere to this. Sometimes we do see multiple versions of a past self. Like, like I- we see past and future selves in other series of Star Trek. So I feel like Discovery is following a different angle, but also sometimes we see where it has been the person all along and there isn't a past self. I mean, I think the way I think about it is that Michael said, this is the time where I set the signals. She was wondering when were these signals set? And she's like, this is it. And so she's the only one in that time right now because she is her present self. And so she will be the only one going back to set it. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. I just am... Yes. Yeah. I mostly agree with you. It's like Infinity War and Endgame with the Avengers. There's one future outcome that has control being destroyed, and this is it. And so shouldn't we see 
Michael in the past when she's going to set the signals because it's the only correct universe where control loses. I think you just answer your own question. It's the only universe, so it's the only Michael. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Just to confuse Ooh, you even further. I just need Spock <laughs> to explain. I don't understand. But I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I don't know. Okay, so then this is more of a funny observation. My other problem with her jumping back to set the signals is <laughs> it didn't seem like or they didn't show her specifically calculating when exactly to show up. And so this goes back to your point about Harry with the Dementors thinking, oh, wing it because it worked last time. The minute that Michael appeared to set those signals to meet herself, to have Saru see her and to save the Kelpians from the Baowul was very, very specific timing. So then it has me wondering, was the suit pre-programmed with those exact specifications? This is what I'm thinking. Mm. I'm thinking in the process, Process, they had the entire map of the signals ready to be like, here's where all of them are as because sort of Michael's a guide. Because already done it. Yeah, because oh. they already have the signals mapped out, like, from the first episode that the, that the angel appeared. Oh, so they already know where they're going to be set and when they appeared. And they, of course, have so many mission logs of each time they found another signal. So I think that's exactly it. It was just pre-programmed because it looked like she was just punching a lot of buttons and like getting it all ready right before she jumped. She was typing all over the place and getting ready. And so I think she was inputting every single signal into her coordinates and then just letting the suit run its course. That makes sense. And then she's just hitting go. Yeah. Go. <laughs> go. Okay. So that's why she's like, cool. I mean, the thing is, again, she's pulling a Gabrielle and trying something that... They literally built this suit not even knowing that it would work. Not even knowing if Michael would be completely like, ripped apart in space and time. But it worked. <laughs> Woohoo! Woo. I mean, when you have no other choice, yeah, you I mean, gotta trust your technology and your smart brains. This is Starfleet. <laughs> and a wild half-baked solution, as Lower Decks calls it. Well, as we know, all of this works. And Control is destroyed specifically by Giorgio, <laughs> yeah. killing Leland. And the remaining crew and anyone who knows about these events are silenced and Spock has some great suggestions about how to prevent this from happening in the future, including where he says Starfleet officers should abstain from participating in historical events. And I just, yeah, Rihanna, you should laugh for three more hours because he does not follow his own instructions. What a hypocrite. He attaches himself to this captain who just does not care. But I guess none of the historical events alter Discovery being sent to the future, so Spock is fine with it. Yeah, honestly, it gives me more of an insight into why Spock is a little more casual in these time travel episodes in original series and in the animated series because he knows that nothing as catastrophic as what happened to Discovery will happen in the original <laughs> series or like will happen again. He's Even, like, well <laughs> And if the whales don't get back on time, it's gonna be fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's something I thought was interesting at the end of this episode was Michael promised Spock to send the seventh signal once she was safely back. She would send the suit through the wormhole to do the final signal. And 124 days pass and Spock is waiting and he's enjoying his time on the Enterprise. He's, he's watching feeling, the stars for it. Yeah, he's watching the stars. He's feeling more himself. He shaved his beard. <laughs> and he finally sees the signal 124 days after. So then, start season three. We see what's happening on Michael's side. 
and she notices she lands on a planet she doesn't know where it is she finds out that there is life thank goodness and then she sees the wormhole closing so she sends the seventh signal and this has all been about three or four minutes and so what was 124 days for spock was only minutes for it's michael, seconds for michael. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's definitely a 2009 he was the first to arrive 2009 memes where I mean, it also is just like this is wormhole science where whatever goes through first is going to take a second to come out but it's not profit wormhole science it's only regular time displacement wormhole science so it's only anyway. like corporeal beings bipedal corporeal <laughs> beings yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's such a good point and interesting to think about 2009 because like i hadn't thought about how spock is just constantly involved in these temporal wormhole displacement <laughs> moments of course he is he's spock yeah Season three, you know, Rhiannon and I talked about, we're only going to be discussing this first episode and then some moments in Terra Firma, but it is really interesting to see, again, exactly what Rihanna talked about, that Michael has committed herself to staying in this new timeline. And yeah, characters from years and years have been threatened with this. And now Michael is the one who's actually living with the consequences. Uh, she meets Book. She runs right into him. He's laughing at her ancient tech that it should go into a museum with Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah, it's the year 3,188. Almost is... to the year 3,200. Oh. That's so long ago. That's so, in the future. That's so far. <laughs> Which is funny because how would you even, not funny actually, it's terrifying. <laughs> how would you even reconcile that in your brain? Like, I mean, I guess by seeing all of the crazy stuff that Michael sees. And it's one of my very favorite parts of this episode of her sheer delight of seeing the tech from the future. Because I think I'd be the same way after I got over the shock of it. I'd be like, whoa, you have transporters? You just double tap and you transport? Like, that's amazing. Or she's looking at Book's interface on his ship. And she's like, whoa, it's like a virtual, I don't know, whatever interface they call it. And so to see her bewilderment of the future is really cool and very on brand. She... (laughs) <laughs> okay so she does not tell book who she is but she gives it away really easily because <laughs> i think she wants to tell someone what she's been through i mean we see her get captured in this episode she gets sprayed with some gas that makes her high and easily suggestible so she'll tell the truth to her captors uh, which is an andorian and an orion and she really is desperate to tell somebody anybody about her adventure which just happened that day she just left the past that same day she hasn't even slept yeah this girl hasn't slept in like 40 <laughs> yeah this woman has not slept she has not <laughs> yeah she's at a thousand year old woman in space that's just crazy she's doing her best i think she's finally understanding what her mom felt like and she's only done this jump once <laughs> yeah and again, similar to what happened to her mom initially, is that she was not even sent to Terralisium. She was sent to Heme, which they don't even know what section it is in because all of their long-range sensors are gone because the Federation is gone. And this is the biggest blow, obviously, when Michael finds out about the burn and the destruction of, of the dilithium crystals. And it's just as like, you know... That TNG episode where those guys are in cryostasis and they come out of cryostasis and he's like, hey, I bet I have a lot of money now. And Picard's like, we don't have money anymore. Yeah. This is Michael going to the future and then being like, wow, I see how the Federation has flourished. And Book is like, they don't exist. Yep. He was like, what is that ancient symbol on your chest? It's just, oh, it's 
it's kind of like gives me chills to think about. Well, and he says to Michael, you believe in ghosts, which is just what Gabrielle said to Pike, that you're a ghost to me. Yeah. So, yeah. Ha <laughs> <laughs> Michael. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think she adapts fairly well because what is so... What's always going to be true is that humans are humans and Dorians are Dorians. Like, we are all essentially the same beings. We never truly evolve. (laughs) (laughs) Aristotle was going through the same kind of stuff that we are. Yeah. (laughs) And that Michael will go through. I'm sure, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, very relatable to Aristotle. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Book gives us a little more insight into the time travel ban We don't hear much, but he says that all time travel tech was destroyed after the temporal wars because it was outlawed. And so he's like, you flew in with something that is clearly outlawed, which is crazy. And I'm actually glad that she sent the suit back into the past and made it self-destruct after the signal because like that in the hands of anyone in the future or the past is just not good. I am glad they destroyed the time suit. Also another huge realization to come from this episode is that time travel was banned because like with Daniels, everything, it was being utilized in these wars and uh, only used for bad. Well, I mean, having just seen all those Enterprise episodes, I am not surprised that it was banned and destroyed. I mean, that's the biggest lesson is don't mess with time. Literally, (laughs) one-on-one. Also, we're talking again about temporal mechanics with the wormhole, um, since Discovery went in quite a long time after Michael in wormhole standards, they weren't right on her tail. I mean, they were still following her, but that means that she is not sure if they will appear tomorrow or a thousand years from now. And she's like, oh no, I have to start playing this waiting game to see if my ship is ever going to come through. And I'm really glad it was just a year, you know, like that's not a terrible amount of time to go through, but just enough to drive you crazy. I mean, it wasn't, in in Star Trek 2009, Nero waited 24 years for Spock to arrive, and boy, did he go crazy. He did not let that go. Yeah, I mean, I kind of get it, because if that's your full obsession, and you're thinking about it every day, and waiting for that person to appear, it's gotta be just all-encompassing. So I'm glad that Michael had booked also to sort of ground her in this new timeline. Absolutely, yeah. Well, and, you know, you're just talking about all the... Uh, we were just discussing the time travel war and the temporal war and in terra firma we learn because poor Giorgio is she's vazing out she can't <laughs> deal with being in this universe anymore and she's being pulled back and being ripped apart because she's not in the right universe and so they do a little google search on the sphere <laughs> and on the sphere data and get the result that they have to go to this planet we learn it's called danis 5 and they meet a good friend named Carl. <laughs> He's reading a newspaper, very similar, definitely a throwback to Edith Keeler, I yeah. thought. Um, and he's as cryptic as ever. <laughs> yeah, very cryptic. And we learn at the end of not Terra Firma Part 1, but at the end of Terra Firma Part 2 that this man is the guardian of forever there's that great moment where he has the same sound clip that they use in city on the edge of forever and he even mentions in this conversation that with the temporal cold war everyone was going back in time to try to kill each other and get revenge upon their enemies there's also a great line that he says back in the day i would just say hey i'm a space-time portal and if you messed up history you had to fix it yourself yeah i really wished he would have been like yeah like that time that 
Kirk and Spock went back there and Michael would have been like, wow, that's my brother. I mean, and Spock had multiple encounters with yeah. the Guardian. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just wild that um, they both saw the Guardian. Because this was such a dangerous item, it was um, moved to another planet. And he said, I was moved officially elsewhere. Yeah, and apparently he's nowhere near his original planet, so... Yeah. I think that's good. No one can find him except the sphere data. And she realizes that the sphere data knew about the Guardian originally. And then once it had updated information about the nearby planets, was able to calculate where the Guardian would be today. So thank God. And also, this was a, a piece of evidence that I don't think specifically has come to light yet in the Star Trek universe. And that is that the Guardian can send you into different universes because of course terra firma is all about um the mirror universe which we're not discussing in this podcast you have to wait for the mirror series coming up uh in a couple series from <laughs> yeah now. i think this is the first time that we've known this so that's big news and i don't know if we're gonna see the guardian again there's a lot of rumors that the fourth star trek movie taking place in the kelvin timeline will be about the guardian of forever A couple years ago, it was rumored that Chris Hemsworth was casted in it, which of course is Kirk's dad in those movies. So I feel like The Guardian might have a second appearance. I don't know if it's going to have an appearance in the Prime Universe ever again, but what a joy and what a great bookend for this series, for our series. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And it's really cool because The Guardian sent Giorgio back to, quote, a time when the Prime and Mirror Universes were more aligned. And so this is then a perfect opportunity to send Giorgio into the Section 31 series. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure that's what's going to happen. I think that's what we all are thinking. <laughs> I'm also very, very excited to see where she is sent. Because a time where the Mirror Universe and Prime Universes are close together like is that world war ii is that somewhere more relevant to the future like is this in enterprise i i don't know but i know it has to be at some point before now before before the where discovery was taking place which is of course around tos era so oof i can't wait to see do you think that it has to appear before because i feel like the mirror universes were pretty close in tos era as well i mean it only took one transporter accident to get them there no no i no. he means close in from splitting off he Uh. means closeness to be i mean we've talked about in other episodes like at least in mirror mirror that universe the mirror universe exists because germany won the war right and so that's why i'm wondering if she's going to go back to world war ii and if she's going to work like you know in that capacity or is she going but she can't but section 31 wouldn't exist then well how do you know (laughs) (laughs) you know fair enough okay actually another problem maybe a better theory is that she's going to Because technically now, since they're in the year 3100, 3188, back in time is like a really relative term. I think I'm thinking too much like they're still in the TOS era going in the Guardian. And so that would be the future. But maybe they're going to the time right after Mirror Mirror in TOS when Spock changes Enterprise around and it starts getting better. Yeah, I don't know. And maybe that's, that's when their universes are closer. I don't know. Or when Section 31's Oof. created. Who knows? But this yeah. is all very exciting, and we cannot wait for Section 31 show to come out. And we can't wait to have our Mirror Universe series coming up soon. We have 
already announced that our villain series is coming up next. So I think we're going to have a lot of conversations about George O. <laughs> yes. And um, also, we have a piece of hilarious news that when we were doing our original <laughs> series, our original series time travel episodes, we got so excited to talk about yesteryear in the animated series that we forgot to look if there was other time travel episodes <laughs> for the animated series. And then our amazing website that we found at xactressscientitia.org uh, literally told us that there were a couple of animated series episodes that have time travel. So you are going to be blessed with a little mini episode next week of just animated series shenanigans with time travel so that will officially end our time travel series yeah if you're craving for more reviews of the animated series you should definitely go to our patreon which yeah. is patreon.com slash the Dura sisters podcast because we have been reviewing the animated series we have reviewed all of lower decks and we have done a whole series of star trek trivia we are so excited to continue expanding the patreon and putting up more episodes, more reviews, because we love creating content for you, and we would love if you could have our backs, too. <laughs> yeah, and spoiler alert, our next series after the animated series is going to be about the Star Trek short treks, which is going to be a blast, and something that could be really fun to discover new things about the discovery and picard era shows yeah absolutely so i hope you tune in next week to listen to our animated series reviews of time travel episodes and i hope you'll also join us on the patreon to hear just normal reviews we don't just talk about a specific theme on the patreon it's just good old-fashioned episode reviews yes so please check that out and rihanna Thank you for talking to me today about time travel because it's great to be together. We're literally next to each other, which is so rare. It's so wild. I'm like, not used to it. It's amazing. I know. I'm like, where do I look? Do I look at Rihanna? Do I look at the computer? <laughs> <laughs> but we've made it work. <laughs> yeah. Ashlyn, thank you. I've just loved this series. I'm thrilled that you chose it. I think it was perfect. And I'm so excited to talk about animated series next week and then to go on to villains. We're just... We already started making our villain list because we're just so freaking excited. Yeah, we're so pumped for villains. It Honestly, the hard part is narrowing it down to which villains are the best. Yeah, because we're only going top tier, folks. So. Yeah, god tier villain list only on the Dura <laughs> Sisters pod. And god tier might go double, double entendre, just, you know. Ooh, ooh, that was good. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All right, well, thank you for joining us. Please tune in next week. Thank you for listening to the Dura Sisters podcast. Please tune in next week for the seventh episode of our time travel series, where Ashton and Rihanna will discuss the time travel episodes we missed in Star Trek The Animated Series. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and check to see our suggested watch list for our upcoming episodes. Also take a moment to check out our content on Tumblr and TikTok. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a review on whatever platform you listen. By donating any amount per month, you can become a monthly patron and unlock our exclusive reviews of Lower Decks, the animated series, and Star Trek trivia. You can find all of this and more at patreon.com slash the Dura Sisters podcast. If you would like to contact us for any reason, please do so at the Dura Sisters podcast at gmail.com. Our intro, Klingon Battle, was written by Jerry Goldsmith. 
And our outro, Worst Revenge, is by Arillo Voltaire. Wow! Don't I forget to be good. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> all right, this is final check before takeoff. Here, and can we all have our bags stowed and tucked away, please? Oh, I was thinking we're at NASA. We're oh. ready for the final launch. <laughs> I was thinking it was privatized space. <laughs> pew, pew, pew.